Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. Before we get started with the wonderful Ed Etchells and Melanie Bamel on hyperkalemia, just a couple of quick announcements. First, courses. I've had the great opportunity to help out as a course director for the first ever podcasting course for medical educators in April 2017. This is going to be a two-day course on everything you need to know and learn about how to create a kick-ass podcast which is being put on by the Teaching Institute. That's uh, the incredible nonprofit organization run by Rob Rogers and Salim Rizé, who also run the teaching course, which is like the best med-ed course I've ever been to. So if you're thinking of starting a podcast or you want to take your existing podcast to the next level, come on down to Kentucky and learn from greats like Scott Weingart, Rob, Salim, Anand Swaminathan, uh, Jess Mason from EM Rap's going to be there. Uh, There's going to be small group workshops. Um, for more details, just go to the website, which is thepodcastingcourse, all one word, dot com. Thepodcastingcourse.com. And talking about courses, the second annual EM Cases course will be held this year on February 4th, 2017, the day before Super Bowl Sunday. Last year's course sold out pretty quickly, and there were only 45 spots available for this year. Uh, Registration opens up September 27th, so get in there early and get your spot. It's first come, first serve. If you want more information about the course, go to emcases.com and click on the EM Cases course poster on the sidebar uh, to get all the details you need. Now, another important announcement is that we're starting with this episode, a brand new thing that we're trying out, and I'd love to hear your feedback on whether you think we should keep it going. It's called EBM Bottom Line, and you'll know it's coming because it'll sound a little bit like this. And now for EBM Bottom Line. How EBM Bottom Line works is that at some point during the podcast, Justin Morgenstern will jump in for a couple of minutes to give you his evidence-based bottom line take-home message from the most important article related to the podcast topic that we're doing in that particular podcast. So let us know what you think. And talking about feedback in general, please let us know what you think about any podcast or post or anything EM Cases related by placing your comments at the bottom of any of the website posts or just emailing me directly at anton at emergencymedicinecases.com. Your feedback is really valuable to make EM cases the best that it can possibly be. All right, enough of that. Now, on to Hyper-K. Of all the electrolyte emergencies, hyperkalemia is the one that has the greatest potential to lead to cardiac arrest. And so, early in my EM training, I learned to get the patient on a monitor, ensure IV access, order up an ECG, bombard the patient with a cocktail of caexalate, calcium, insulin, beta agonist, bicarb, fluids, furosemide, and get the patient admitted, maybe some dialysis to boot. Little did I know that some of these therapies were based on theory alone, while others were based 
on a few small, poorly done studies. It turns out that some of these therapies may cause more harm than good, and that precisely when and how to give these therapies to optimize patient outcomes is still not really known. There are many questions in my mind that remain unanswered when it comes to the ED management of Hyper-K. So join me in pondering the following questions for a moment. What exactly are the indications for giving calcium? Is calcium strictly contraindicated in patients on digoxin? Or are there some situations in which we should give dig patients calcium? Which is better to stabilize the cell membrane and prevent dysrhythmias from hyper-K? Calcium gluconate or calcium chloride? When we give insulin aren't we causing an unacceptably high number of patients to become hypoglycemic? Is there any role for K-exalate in the ED? Doesn't it fry the gut in some patients or something like that? Which fluids are the best to help eliminate K through the kidneys? Should we try eliminating K through the GI tract with laxatives? When should we avoid laxatives in patients with hyper-K? And should bicarb ever be used in treating hyper-K? How soon after we give these treatments should we expect an improvement in the potassium level? Is there a danger in giving beta agonists first before other treatments? In the hyperkalemic cardiac arrest, should we push for dialysis intra-arrest? These are questions that I've had for a while. And so with the help of our all-star team of electrolyte emergency experts, who you may remember from one of my favorite EM cases podcasts, Emergency Management of Hyponatremia, We'll answer these important questions as well as give you a solid and finessed approach to assessing and managing the patient with hyperkalemia. So it's my pleasure, because I loved having these folks on the Hyponatremia podcast, to welcome back to EM Cases from Sunnybrook Hospital in Toronto, internist educator extraordinaire, Dr. Ed Etchells, and the queen of electrolyte emergencies, Dr. Melanie Bamel. So welcome, Ed. Thank you, Anton. Thanks for inviting me back. And welcome, Melanie. Thanks for having me back. Oh, and by the way, none of us have any conflicts of interest to declare. So ready, steady, let's go. Case number one. A 40-year-old man with a history of diabetes presents to the ED with gradual onset nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and epigastric pain over the last few days. He has no fever, no travel history, no sick contacts, no melina, no history of gallstones or pancreatitis or peptic ulcer disease, no chest pain, no shortness of breath, no dizziness, and he's not a drinker. His vitals and sugar are normal, and his belly is benign. His ECG shows peak T waves with no ST changes. His first trope is negative, and his K comes back elevated at 6.3. He's got a creatinine of 150, slightly elevated. So, Dr. Actuals, what are some clinical clues that a patient might have hyper-K in general, and in this case, what are some of the clues that it might be hyper-K and not an MI or gastro or something like that? Sure, Anton. Well, first of all, the patient has symptoms that could be caused solely by hyperkalemia. Usually they can have GI symptoms or neurologic symptoms or both. Although it's important to remember it can be a completely asymptomatic yet serious electrolyte abnormality. 
So in this patient, the GI symptoms could be solely due to the hyperkalemia, or the patient may have some other condition which is predisposed to some kind of pre-renal injury and hyperkalemia as a consequence. I would want to know right away what this patient's medications were and previous creatinine values. Absolutely. So is it safe to say that the level of the potassium doesn't necessarily correlate with the symptoms? It's safe to say that. It's an old clinical axiom, but probably it relates to the severity of the hyperkalemia, but also the rapidity by which it develops. Okay, so if it develops really fast, they're more likely to be symptomatic. More likely to be symptomatic. That's okay. right. So patients with GI stuff that doesn't make sense, that doesn't really sound like a gastro, or patient with neurological things like yeah. paresthesias or there's that sudden paralysis that's unexplainable by any other neurological disorder, that's when we might be thinking hyper-K. But that being said, often it's asymptomatic and we only find out when we actually get the K back. Yeah, I think there's a lot of overlap between the symptoms of hyper-K and the symptoms that predispose patients to getting it. So sometimes it can be hard to sort that out. All right. So his potassium 6.3, creatinine 150. What's the first thing you're going to do when you see this K? So you're going to take it seriously. I would put this patient in a monitored setting, establish IV access. Personally, I would want to establish good urine flow, so I would put a Foley catheter in. It's very important to remember that 20% of samples of hyperkalemia actually don't represent the patient's true physiologic status. So pseudo-hyperkalemia is actually pretty common. There's lots of reasons why that might occur. Some hematologic conditions predispose to pseudo-hyperkalemia and a lot of technical issues around how the blood is drawn and how long it sits before the sample is analyzed. Now, I remember being taught yeah. that it was just a lab error most of the time. That's not true, eh? Well, it's not really a lab error. The lab is correctly analyzing a sample, but and the sample does not actually reflect the patient's true physiologic status. Mm-hmm. So it's from like poor phlebotomy yeah. technique and that sort of thing. Yeah, they're called pre-analytic errors. There's nothing wrong with the analysis per se. The sample just does not reflect the patient's true status. Okay, and you had mentioned yeah. hematologic things like yeah. leukocytosis? Uh, leukocytosis, thrombocytosis, those are the classic ones. Okay, so about one-fifth of high Ks that you see are actually not really high K. Correct. They're pseudo-high K, and they can be from just bad technique from getting the sample or from high white cells or high platelets. Okay, what else do you want to do right away with this patient? So that's where the 12-lead ECG is crucial. So if I have a patient with a high potassium value but a completely normal ECG, and in particular otherwise asymptomatic, no GI symptoms, no neurologic symptoms. I'm not going to treat them urgently. I'm going to get them in a monitored setting, and I'm going to take a history to see if there's an explanation for the hyperkalemia. If there's no good explanation, top ones, drugs, pre-existing renal failure, crush injuries, if I don't get any of that stuff, I'm going to just repeat the sample and sit tight. Yeah, Corey Slovis is famous for saying hyper-K, ECG. You know, to remember that as soon as you see that K, you, the first thing you want to do is get an ECG. And Dr. Bamel, we get the ECG. This ECG shows peak Ts and there's no ST changes. When you see peak Ts on an ECG, what are you thinking? So the first thing that I'm going to think of with peak T waves is hyper-K. It's the most commonly recollected sign of hyperkalemia, just ask any medical student. They're typically narrow-based, tall, and pointy, whereas the 
hyperacute T waves of an early MI tend to be broad-based and rounded. With hyperacute T waves, if you're having some difficulty distinguishing between that and the peak Ts of hyper-K, one thing you might want to do is serial ECGs and troponins, and that can help be sorted out as well. Absolutely, yeah. So you'll see either the progression of the MI with ST elevation or ST depression, or in the case of hyper-K, you might see the progression of the hyper-K. So talking about the progression of hyper-K, could you just go through for us and remind our listeners how the ECG progresses as the hyper-K gets worse? Sure. So the classic progression, the disclaimer is that it comes from experimental models. So the EKG doesn't necessarily in real life change in a stepwise manner with rising K values. But the first thing that generally happens is uh, you get those hyperacute T waves that we were just talking about. And that represents a faster repolarization of the myocytes. Next, as the potassium levels increase, as the potassium level increases, the resting membrane potential becomes more positive, and that slows the rate of depolarization and conduction in the myocytes. It first affects the atria, and that appears as flattening of the P waves and eventual disappearance of the P waves, as well as prolongation of the PR interval. And then it starts to affect the ventricles, and that appears as a widened QRS that looks a bit funny and asymmetrical, such that the S wave tends to sag as it's approaching the T wave. And then finally, if the hyper-K goes unchecked, uh, you can start to get the QRS merging with the T wave, forming a sine wave pattern that looks sort of like an oscillation on the EKG. And that's a pre-terminal rhythm that can easily deteriorate into V-fib arrest. Wow, that was a great explanation through all the, the changes. So I just want to reiterate there. So it's that old teaching that the higher the K the more likely the wide QRS and progression into sine wave and then ventricular fibrillation. It's not necessarily so that the higher the K, the worse the ECG changes. I would say that in general, it's true. But yes, you can have theoretically a completely normal EKG and a high serum potassium level. But Ed was mentioning earlier, it would also make me think of pseudo hyper K in that scenario. You know, Hyper-K has been called the great imitator in ECGs by Alma Matu and others. Dr. Etchells, what do they mean by the great imitator? I mean, we know that Hyper-K can go through this progression and can lead to ventricular fibrillation. What do they mean by saying that Hyper-K can be the great imitator in ECGs? I believe what they mean is that all of the changes that Melanie just outlined are not specific for a disorder like hyperkalemia, other than perhaps the pre-terminal type of rhythms. So there's lots of reasons for the T waves to appear higher amplitude. It can be a very subtle distinction between a peaked T wave and a arced T wave or a hyperacute T wave. There's lots of reasons for QRS widening. There's lots of reasons for the P wave amplitude to go down. There's lots of reasons for the PR interval to prolong. So you have to look at the entire pattern. You have to look at the potassium level, you have to look at non-cardiac symptomatology, and you have to make a decision whether this actually is a true abnormality for the patient or not. Because what we worry about is a sudden cardiac death. If there's any doubt, I think it's always appropriate to treat the patient. All right. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that hyper-K is a metabolic problem that can often mimic a primary electrical problem. Uh, so, for example, the most common mimic is profound bradycardia, and that can make us think about pacing a patient when really we should be giving them calcium. And in fact, in hyper-K, pacing often won't work, which hopefully will tip people off, uh, that you're dealing with something other than a heart block or something of that nature that's intrinsic to the electrical system rather than a metabolic issue. So one of the one of the most common imitators for sure is bradycardia. I've seen that many times. Um, and you're going to be looking out for those other signs of hyper-K to try and distinguish whether it's a true block or whether it's all hyper-K. Are there any other sort of common mimics that can really fool you that people should be on the lookout for? Yeah, funny-looking slow VTAC, so a rhythm that's going less than 100 with no P waves. Think about hyper-K and giving calcium rather than shocking or even worse, giving amiodarone. All right. So I'm just imagining the patient who collapses and it looks like VTAC on the monitor, but it's kind of slow. And you're thinking, well, it's probably VTAC. I learned in medical school that anything that looks kind of like VTAC, don't assume that it could be an SVT with aberrancy. Just assume that it's VTAC and shock the patient. I guess you just got to take that one second to think, could this be hyper-K? And especially if it doesn't work, I don't think it's the end of the world if you try one shock, but then you should always sort of reassess and say, why didn't that shock work? And could this be something else? Awesome. Great pearl. All right. So just to review what we've talked about so far, we've talked about the presentation of K. In many patients, it'll be totally asymptomatic. But when you have a patient with GI symptoms or neurologic symptoms that aren't fitting, then think about hyper-K. First thing we should do when we see hyper-K is to repeat it and make sure that it's not pseudo-hyper-K, get an ECG, and on the ECG, remember that hyper-K can mimic just about anything, especially bradycardias and sort of slow VTAC. Think about and know, like the back of your hand, the progression of ECG changes with hyper-K. Let's talk a little bit about the causes of hyper-K. Dr. Etchell's what are the five big causes of hyper-K that every eMERGE doc needs to know about? And we've talked about pseudo-hyper-K, but the real causes. What are, what are the big real causes of hyper-K? Sure. So by far the most common contributing factors are drugs, including non-prescription drugs. The key ones to ask about are non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs and non-prescription salt substitutes, many of which are potassium chloride that can be purchased off the grocery store shelf. Second key contributing factor is any degree of pre-existing renal insufficiency. The patient doesn't have to be on dialysis. A patient with a creatinine of 150 micromoles per liter is going to have a significant, most of those patients will have significant difficulty excreting potassium. Third is pre-existing diabetes. For a variety of reasons, patients with diabetes have a tendency for hyperkalemia. Those three are going to cover the bulk. Always have primary adrenal insufficiency in the back of your mind. You don't want to miss that diagnosis. So if none of the other things are operative, always ask yourself, are you missing primary adrenal insufficiency? I think it's not hard to figure out if the patient has a crush injury, but it can be difficult to diagnose some of the more subtle causes of cell death. So uh, you might see hyperkalemia in patients with rapid cell turnover. Usually it's obvious because those patients have just been treated with chemotherapy, but in the initial stages, this might be the first presentation of a rapidly turning over hematologic malignancy or solid tumor. All righty. So first you get pseudo-K out of the way. 
then we got thinking about renal failure, which is probably the most common real cause. Uh, there's drugs, ACE inhibitors, potassium sparing diuretics, NSAIDs, Septra can do it. Yeah. And we need to be thinking about acidosis, so adrenal insufficiency, DKA, and then lastly, cell death. Uh, so rhabdomyolysis, tumor lysis syndrome, that sort of thing, crush injuries, massive transfusions can do it. Good. Okay. So in general, it's usually a good idea to treat the underlying cause of any metabolic derangement we see in medicine, and that's true for hyper-K as well. We're going to talk extensively about how to manage the hyper-K itself in a little bit, but what are some of the pearls you can tell our listeners about treating underlying renal failure or adrenal insufficiency that's caused by hyper-K? Yeah, I mean... If the patient has end-stage renal diseases on dialysis, there's not much you're going to be able to do. Other than that, the key issues are ensuring adequate prerenal status. The patient can't be volume depleted, so establish IV access, do a volume assessment, and start giving the patient appropriate volume resuscitation. The second is establish good urine flow. If there's any doubt, I would insert a Foley catheter and make sure I'm getting good urine flow. If there's any question about obstruction, answer that question with an ultrasound. One of the first metabolic abnormalities of obstructive uropathy is hyperkalemia. They're unable to excrete potassium in the cortical collecting ducts. If you have unilateral obstruction and no other problems, you're probably not going to get hyperkalemic. But if you have a pre-existing condition like mild renal insufficiency or diabetes or a medication, and then obstructive uropathy on top of that, you're going to get hyperkalemic. Hmm. So that's a great pearl. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, if you're thinking there might be obstructive uropathy as a yeah. cause for the renal failure, yeah. one of the first things you should do when you see hyper-K is put in a Foley catheter. Yeah. Plus you need the urine output to make sure you're establishing good urine flow because establishing good urine flow is one of the key management strategies for any cause of hyperkalemia. In terms of the possibility of primary adrenal insufficiency, it's really just always having that diagnosis in the back of your mind. It's an easy diagnosis to make once it's in your mind patient's going to be hyperpigmented, usually hyponatremic, usually hypotensive and volume depleted. If you cannot identify any other good explanation for the hyperkalemia, think about adrenal insufficiency. Just send off a random cortisol and ACTH. That'll confirm the diagnosis and you're well within your rights to give 100 milligrams of solucortef after that until the situation's clarified itself. Great. Love it. Okay, so we've covered the presentation, ECG, differential. Let's get into the nitty-gritty of treatment. So, Dr. Bamel, first, can you just review for us sort of the three big main steps in treating hyper-K? So the treatment of hyper-K hasn't really changed much in the last 50 years, and it's not based on a lot of evidence, but it works. And it's a nice example of something in medicine where the lack of evidence does not equal the lack of efficacy. So the first step is uh, to stabilize the cardiac membranes if there's any sign of cardiotoxicity. The second step is to shift potassium intracellularly. And the final step is to remove potassium from the body either with dialysis or by establishing good urine output. All right, so shifting K into the cells, stabilizing the cardiac membrane, and removing potassium via the kidneys. Now, my next question sounds like a simple one, but it's actually not so simple. 
which patients with hyper-K should receive treatment? You know, when I was training, we were taught that if the K was between 5.5 and 6.5, we should give insulin glucose. And if it was greater than 6.5, we should then add calcium and to keep giving calcium until the QRS was narrowed below 100. That was kind of my algorithm that I had in my head. We now know that the ECG changes don't correlate that well with the level of K. And some patients with only a mildly elevated K and a normal ECG can theoretically develop dysrhythmias. So is there an absolute K threshold whereby the risk of dysrhythmia necessitates treatment? How do we decide which patients should actually be treated? Anton, I'm not aware of solid evidence-based recommendations that are going to guide that question. I think it's reasonable to treat any patient with a serum potassium of 6.5 or greater with either cardiac membrane stabilizing medications and or shifting medications. If the potassium is between 5 and 6.5, you might get away with just looking at the underlying cause and enhancing excretion as long as there's no ECG changes. So my approach is if it's over 6.5 and the ECG is abnormal, I'm going to give them calcium and I'm going to shift them. And then I'm going to focus on underlying cause and excretion. If the potassium is between 5 and 6.5 and there's ECG changes, I'm going to do exactly the same thing. If the potassium is between 5 and 6.5 with no ECG changes, I'm going to focus on underlying cause and enhancing excretion. But others might disagree. That's just one possible approach. Sounds perfectly reasonable to me. Yeah, I totally agree. I would do the same thing. Oftentimes, there is an easily identifiable cause that can be rapidly reversed just with fluids, and you don't have to complicate things by giving insulin and worrying about hypoglycemia. And obviously, if there's any EKG changes, then that trumps everything, and you've got to treat the patient aggressively. So let's review Dr. Etchell's approach to indications for immediate ED treatment for hyper-K. First, If the K is greater than 6.5, regardless of the ECG, or if it's between 5 and 6.5 with ECG changes, that's when you need to drive K into the cells and stabilize the cardiac membrane. Next, if the K is greater than 5 or less than 6.5 with no ECG changes, then simply enhance excretion by ensuring good urine output in hypovolemic patients and look for an underlying cause. All right, so we're thinking about treating this patient. Their potassium 6.3. They've got some peak T waves. My first question, Dr. Bamel, is would you give this patient a potassium binding agent like K-exalate with sorbitol? Absolutely not, Anton. I think the emergency community is in agreement on this one, that KXLate is not a useful drug, that it's slow to work, that it has questionable efficacy and potentially some harm associated with it. There's been a few case studies of that it's associated with intestinal necrosis. So I don't think it's part of the emergency management of hyper-K, but I still do see the occasional internal medicine resident ordering it and family docs in the community. So I'd love to hear Ed's take on it. Kaxate has no role in emergency management of hyperkalemia. It has a very limited role in the outpatient management of chronic hyperkalemia in selected patients. Okay, so bottom line is no Kaxate. 
Let's talk about shifting K into cells. So this patient's got a potassium of 6.3. He's got some ECG changes. We're going to shift him. So there's insulin, glucose. There's beta agonists like albuterol or salbutamol, ventolin in Canada. And then there's bicarb. So let's start with insulin glucose. Dr. Etchells, how should we be giving insulin glucose? I've seen people give it all different kinds of ways. I've heard that there's a lot of people who end up with unrecognized hypoglycemia when we give insulin glucose. Mm -hmm. What's your recommendation in terms of giving insulin glucose to shift that potassium into cells? Yes, Anton. So the quality of the evidence, again, is not great. There was a review just published spring of 2016 that really looks at all of this evidence. So the review that Dr. Etchells is referring to says that in studies where 10 units of insulin were infused, the fewest cases of hypoglycemia were seen in patients who were given 50 grams of glucose. So that's two amps of D50W followed by 10 units of IV humulin R. And make sure that the humulin R is given in a rapid injection through a fast-moving IV line. The key is monitoring of the glucose. I know uh, you might feel that the frequency of monitoring is excessive, but you should probably do it every half an hour. And if you do it every half an hour with that dose of glucose, I think the risk of hypoglycemia is quite acceptable and it can be managed quite effectively. My view is that you're going to start an IV and run D5 or D10 for every patient that you're going to shift anyway. And then you can always piggyback in volume if you need to give them volume. I think that'll mitigate the risks of hypoglycemia. Some people believe you have to give much higher doses of insulin, like 20 units, along with a minimum of 50 to 60 grams of glucose. And there's some theoretical reasons why that's true, but there's not a lot of hard science to support that theory. I like the thing that you added there at the end was then you'd start D5W or D10W and that will at least theoretically prevent most patients from becoming hypoglycemic and those patients who do become hypoglycemic, as long as you're monitoring them and doing a glucose every half hour for the first little bit, then you can catch all of those patients. Yeah. So to continue our conversation on shifting K into cells, we've talked about glucose and insulin. What about beta agonists, albuterol or salbutamol, ventolin, nebs? Is it worth doing, you think? Yeah, why not? I mean, the only downside is that it's going to make the patient a bit tachycardic and tremulous, but it's been shown to work really well with insulin. They work synergistically to lower the serum potassium by about 1.2 millimoles over the course of an hour. You have to use large doses, though, uh, much larger than you would use in asthma. So 20 milligrams nebulized or six to eight puffs through an aero chamber will accomplish that goal. Okay. So you're going to have a tremulous, maybe tacky patient, but that's interesting that it works actually synergistically uh, with the insulin and glucose. So definitely if you got someone with a really high K, especially bad ECG changes, you should be throwing a neb on them. Yeah, the only caution is that they recommend not using it as a monotherapy. So for some reason, in about a third of patients who receive beta agonists, they won't drop their K in response to the beta agonist. Okay, and there's this theory that uh, the beta agonist may actually transiently increase the potassium. Can you tell us a little bit more about that, Dr. Etchells? Yeah, I must be honest, I'm not sure what the mechanism of that is, but it has been proven in the one study that used salbutamol by meter dose inhaler and aero chamber where they actually measured the serum potassium 60 seconds after administering the salbutamol and there was an average rise of 
0.4 millimoles per liter of the serum potassium in those patients. It quickly came down after that. So the recommendation is always give the glucose and insulin first before you give the beta agonists to theoretically mitigate that risk of very brief transient worsening of the hyperkalemia. I think the other caveat is if you think the patient might be having a myocardial infarction or if they have known unstable angina, you know, you probably shouldn't be giving such high doses of beta agonists. Absolutely. Yeah. I love that pearl. So yeah. so when we're trying to drive that K into the cells, make sure you give the glucose and insulin first before the beta agonist, yeah. especially in those patients who already have ECG changes because that little transient rise in K that could be caused by the Ventolin may actually make their condition worse. They're synergistic, and by an hour, you should see you should see your K come down by quite a significant amount. All right, so we've talked about insulin, glucose, talked about beta agonists. Now we'll get on to the real controversy, and that's bicarb. So bicarb does shift K into cells. Do you recommend bicarb for the treatment of hyper-K? Anton, again, in the limited studies that have been done, the conclusion is that bicarbonate therapy really has no role to play in the management of routine management of severe hyperkalemia. I think it has a very limited role to play in a patient who turns out also to have a severe metabolic acidosis, particularly if it's a non-anion gap type metabolic acidosis. So as routine management, I think the answer is no. Very selected patients, you might give it. I can't think of the last time I've had a patient that meets those criteria. All right. So no to bicarb for the routine management in very selected cases of non-anion gap metabolic acidosis. You may consider it. Yeah. But it certainly is not the first If I can add, you're well within your rights in the emergency room setting to wait on that until a nephrologist comes down and says this patient has a non-anion gap type metabolic acidosis where I think bicarbonate is warranted. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, renal tubular acidosis is not a diagnosis I think I've ever made in the emergency department. So, (laughs) all right. So, Dr. Etchells, we've talked about shifting potassium into the cells. How fast do these things happen? You know, Dr. Bamel, you had mentioned that in an hour, uh, the insulin and glucose can shift the cells. When should we be repeating the potassium? Like, when can we expect the potassium to really get better? Yeah, I think you should repeat it at one hour. All of these treatments, if they're going to work, they will start working within 5 to 15 minutes. And the maximal effect you can expect around an hour. Sure. And you'll see that uh, your patient will improve right before your eyes once you've shifted them and potentially given them calcium. The ECG will change. The blood pressure will improve. They'll look better. So the hour mark is really just to confirm that your treatments have worked on paper. Absolutely. So we're going to be monitoring the glucose. We're going to be monitoring the K at one hour. We've shifted the K into the cells. Let's talk a little bit about elimination. What are some of the easy things we can do in the ED to enhance the elimination of K? So Anton, the major mechanism of elimination is going to be through the kidneys. So establishing good urine flow is the most fundamental element of management. So Again, if I have any doubt, I insert a Foley catheter. The only patient where I wouldn't bother with that is if they're known to be chronically anuric, it's not going to be well-received by the patient. And make sure they're euvolemic. Those are essential. Most of these patients are going to be hypovolemic, not all, but most. If there's any doubt, I would give them 
crystalloid to ensure that they're euvolemic. There's really not a role to play for diuretics except in the management of a clearly hypervolemic patient. So if you have a patient who's in congestive heart failure and edematous who's become hyperkalemic because of medications and non-steroidals, then the addition of furosemide is entirely appropriate. There's no role for furosemide in the patient unless you've proven that they're hypervolemic. Otherwise, you should just be giving the hypovolemic patient crystalloid and establishing good urine flow. Now, when it comes to the type of fluid, I think there's a lot of controversy around giving normal saline. You know, there's the hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis with too much saline. Ringer's lactate, I understand, has potassium in it. So that doesn't really make sense to be giving a hyper-K patient something that has potassium in in it. Let's say we have this patient who's got nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, their creatinine's a bit up. They're almost for sure hypovolemic. Mm-hmm. How are you going to resuscitate them? How are you going to try and make them euvolemic with what fluid? Normal saline. I don't think there's any debate. I totally agree. You know, usually we're giving two or three liters of normal saline to get them back to a euvolemic state where they're outputting urine and excreting potassium. I think Ed's going to go into the studies, but, you know, we're not giving five or six liters where we're starting to worry about hyperchloremic acidosis. Yeah, really, I'm familiar with the line of argument that you're alluding to where giving large volumes of normal saline in patients who are eukalemic can actually lead to a non-anion gap type metabolic acidosis and increasing the serum potassium levels. Those are studies that are done in the perioperative management phase of patients getting renal transplantation. If you read those studies carefully, they exclude patients who are hyperkalemic. Ah. You cannot justify giving an intravenous fluid with a potassium concentration of four to a patient who's got life-threatening hyperkalemia. It makes no physiologic sense. Second of all, those studies, uh, Mel correctly stated, they look at patients who received an average of five liters of normal saline perioperatively. I'm not talking about giving patients five liters of normal saline. I'm talking about giving them much smaller doses acutely to establish good urine flow. I have no problem with switching to Ringer's lactate once you've established good urine flow and the serine potassium is now in the high normal range. I got no issue with that. But giving Ringer's lactate acutely when a patient's got a serum potassium of 6.3 with ECG changes, I don't think it's defensible. It doesn't fit with the evidence whatsoever, and it makes no physiologic sense. All right. So let's have a little review here. So when to suspect hyper-K clinically? While hyper-K is often asymptomatic and almost always causes vague symptoms, You should suspect hyper-K in any renal patient, especially those on dialysis, or any patient on an ACE inhibitor, potassium-sparing diuretics, beta blockers, or septra, who presents with unexplained gastro-like GI symptoms or unexplained neurologic symptoms. Next, as Corey Slovis says, hyper-K ECG. In other words, a STAT ECG is key. So when to suspect hyper-K based on the ECG? While hyper-K being the great ECG imitator can cause any dysrhythmia, be especially suspicious if you see peak Ts, wide bizarre QRSs, 
bratty with a wide QRS or any ECG that looks like slow VTAC. So you got a K that's elevated, you've got your ECG, you've repeated it to make sure it's not pseudo hyper K in patients who have no good reason to have hyper K. Now you've got to think about the four big causes aside from pseudo hyper K. There's renal failure, acidosis like DKA or adrenal insufficiency, cell death like rhabdomyolysis, and drugs. And you start to treat the underlying cause if possible. Now, for treating the K directly, think about the three physiologic goals. First, shifting K into the cells with glucose followed by insulin, and then beta agonists for any patient with symptomatic hyper-K or a K greater than 6.5. Stabilize the cardiac membrane with calcium, which we're going to talk about in detail in the next case, and remove potassium via the kidneys. And we'll talk about dialysis, which is the best way to eliminate K in the next case, But reviewing so far, we want to eliminate K in the hypervolemic patient with furosemide. And we want to give fluids to the hypovolemic patient. And normal saline is a first reasonable choice. Now, the one thing we didn't mention in terms of elimination is GI elimination. Now, theoretically, you get the bowels moving and you can eliminate some K through the bowels. Dr. Etchell's What do you do in your practice in terms of eliminating K through the bowels, and what would you recommend in the ED? So I think for the purposes of emergency room management, there's no major role for GI elimination strategies. They're not that fast. They're not proven to be effective, and you're not going to be very popular when there's only one toilet for a ward of 20 emergency room patients. (laughs) So... I would use it if I had a patient who was wide awake, could swallow laxatives without difficulty, had a good diet, had normal bowel function but was constipated for some reason. I would have no problem giving them a dose of PEG-3350 to enhance GI elimination. But it is not going to get you out of trouble in an emergency room patient with a potassium of 6.3 in ECG changes. So I really wouldn't be too concerned about it from the perspective of an emergency room physician. Okay, great. And in terms of the things that we don't need to really consider in case you are using these presently, K-exalate is pretty much out the window for the ED. And certainly for the routine patient, there's really no indication for bicarb, except in that rare patient who has a non-anion gap metabolic acidosis, and perhaps in the cardiac arrest patient, which we're going to talk about in the last case. If I can add one other thing about laxatives, if you're going to use a laxative, because most patients with hyperkalemia are going to have some degree of renal insufficiency, you absolutely cannot use milk and magnesia because they'll get magnesium toxicity, and you should not use fleet enemas because they'll get phosphate toxicity. So really the best laxative is PEG-3350. Wow, that's a great pearl. So not specifically having to do with hyper-K, but... We have lots of fleet enemas in the emergency department, so no fleet enemas for patients with renal failure. Correct. So that's all about our basic approach to hyper-K. In the rest of the podcast, we're going to talk more specifically about stabilizing that membrane, i.e. talking about calcium, and we're going to talk about a case of cardiac arrest with hyper-K. On 
On to case number two. I'll keep this one short and simple. A 67-year-old woman with a history of renal failure on dialysis comes into your ED feeling weak and dizzy. She's confused. You do a thorough history and physical, and you really can't find much. But the ECG shows a bizarre-looking wide QRS. You reluctantly order a confusogram, and her K comes back at 7.2. So, Dr. Etchells, what's your general approach to patients on dialysis with hyper-K? My general approach is make sure that you've contacted nephrology immediately because the only way you're going to get the situation under continuous control is with dialysis. You have no opportunity to enhance elimination through the kidneys. As we've discussed previously, the GI elimination strategies have no role to play in the emergency management. So you're going to give this patient calcium. You're going to try and shift this patient. But unless you get nephrology down there and get this patient on dialysis, you're not going to be able to solve the problem. All right. So dialysis, dialysis, dialysis for patients on dialysis. All right. So we've talked about getting K into the cells and elimination. We haven't really talked in detail about stabilizing the cell membrane. So the cornerstone of stabilizing the cell membrane is with calcium, either calcium chloride or calcium gluconate. So Dr. Bangle, first, what are the indications for calcium? So the indication for calcium is whether or not you see changes on the EKG or if the potassium level is over 6.5. Chamberlain said in 1964 that the EKG is a better indicator of imminent harm to life over the serum value. So I'd say, first and foremost, any changes in the EKG that show QRS widening or loss of P waves or PR prolongation, you should definitely consider giving calcium. Okay, so a potassium of 6.5, although not based on any hard evidence, that seems to be sort of a consensus if it's over 6.5 and it's true hyper-K, then it would be reasonable to give calcium. Yeah, that would be sort of a prophylactic indication as opposed to a treatment indication, which in my mind would be if you actually have EKG changes. So you might be questioning this 6.5 cutoff for giving calcium. Dr. Babel is now going to explain all about that cutoff. 6.5 is just sort of a number that we've come up with as a group here today, and it seems like a reasonable value. There's not a lot of harm in giving calcium to uh, you know, stabilize the cardiac membranes for the theoretical possibility that this patient could rapidly evolve into a malignant dysrhythmia. But the mechanism by which calcium actually works is by speeding up the depolarization rate of the cardiac myocyte. So if the ECG is perfectly normal, the calcium will have absolutely no effect. It is purely for prophylaxis. All right. And what about the peak T wave? Some people will say that calcium should really only be giving if the QRS is over 100 milliseconds. Yeah, I would agree with that. It doesn't make sense from a cellular physiological standpoint. So the reason you get peak Ts is because in the setting of hyper-K, you get a faster phase 3 and phase 4 of the action potential, which has to do with the hyperkalemic environment in which the cells are sitting in and voltage-gated potassium channels. It has nothing to do with the rate of the action potential, which is what calcium affects. Okay, so we don't have any hard guidelines or hard good studies to tell us the exact indications for calcium, but based on the physiology, it would make sense 
certainly to give calcium for any wide QRS on an ECG. It would be reasonable to give it for any ECG change, including peak Ts, as sort of a prophylactic so that in case things are progressing, then you'll prevent it from going into a malignant dysrhythmia. And if you're going to choose a number to give calcium for hyper-K, 6.5 is a reasonable number beyond which you can give calcium, even though physiologically, if the ECG is normal, it's probably not going to do much. That's right. It's only going to help with cellular depolarization. So from an atrial standpoint, it's for when P waves are disappearing or you get PR prolongation. And from a ventricular standpoint, it's when you see a widened QRS. For both of those situations, calcium is going to help. I can't see how it's going to help from a cellular physiological standpoint for peak Ts. Okay. And also, I think to be clear that calcium doesn't actually change the potassium level. All it's really doing is preventing you from going into a bad dysrhythmia. All right. Now, what about calcium chloride versus calcium gluconate? Again, I don't think there's any hard studies here to say which one we should use. Uh, what do you recommend, Dr. Etchells? Calcium chloride or calcium gluconate? So I believe this controversy arises because we used to use calcium chloride and then calcium gluconate came along and people didn't appreciate that there was a different amount of elemental calcium in one amp of calcium chloride versus one amp of calcium gluconate. Calcium gluconate is more available and it's probably less phlebitogenic. So for the bulk of patients, I would say calcium gluconate is appropriate. You just have to give enough. You have to remember that there's a third as much calcium in an amp of calcium gluconate as there is in an amp of calcium chloride. So one amp of calcium gluconate may not be sufficient for every patient. After the first amp is given, redo the 12-lead ECG and see if there's the desired effect. If you still are seeing concerning atrial or ventricular findings on the ECG, please give another amp. You can probably give up to three amps before you have to sit back and ask yourself if there's a problem. Okay, so the main disadvantage then of calcium chloride is that it has a higher potential if it is extravasated into the tissues yeah. to cause necrosis um, than calcium gluconate. Is it fair to say then that we should reserve calcium chloride only for the patient who is in arrest or peri-arrest and use calcium gluconate for everyone else? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. Um, the advantage of calcium chloride in an arrest is that it's readily available on the crash cart and you can quickly push it and it has three times the amount of calcium and should do the job. So you don't have to worry about redosing and getting it out of the McKesson and all the downsides to calcium gluconate. All right. So calcium chloride in the peri-arrest or arrest patient, calcium gluconate for everyone else. That's our recommendation. How do you actually give it? So I would order it as one gram of calcium gluconate over five to 10 minutes and then repeat the ECG to make sure that it has achieved the desired effect and the QRS is narrow or the P waves have reappeared. And then in about 30 to 60 minutes, it's important to come back and recheck the electrocardiogram because the calcium gluconate does not last forever. And if the potassium level is still high, um, you'll see depolarization abnormalities reappear. All right. So the pitfall there is to kind of stop and leave the room once the QRS is less than 100 milliseconds because it's not uncommon for the calcium to have only a transient effect 
and for the QRS to widen again in an hour. All right. So this patient that I presented is on digoxin. And the traditional teaching is that calcium is contraindicated in patients on digoxin. What's your take on this teaching? So the theory that you'll get a stone heart if you give calcium in the setting of hyperkalemia and ditch toxicity has largely been debunked by a small study that looked at patients who were hyperkalemic with ditch toxicity and found that there was no difference in mortality or arrhythmia rate in patients who received calcium versus patients who did not. So I think it's safe to give calcium. You don't have to worry about it. Just the recommendation is to give it slower than you normally would. So instead of five to 10 minutes, maybe give it over 20 to 30 minutes and monitor the patient. I totally agree with Dr. Bimel. I do think that if the patient's on digoxin, you might be less inclined to treat a normal ECG with calcium. Fair enough. Other than that, if there's ECG changes that are consistent with hyperkalemia, you should treat the patient in exactly the same way, whether they're on digoxin or not. Although I do agree that some experts recommend that the calcium be given more slowly. Uh, so it's totally reasonable to give it as an infusion over 20 minutes in 100 cc's of D5W. Some people think that's the right way to do it for all patients. So it's a totally reasonable approach. As promised at the top of the podcast, we have a little bonus for you here. Now for EBM Bottom Line. It's time to take a quick break from our regularly scheduled podcast for an evidence-based medicine bottom line. The question, is giving calcium to patients with digoxin toxicity dangerous? To answer this question, we're going to look at a paper by Levine et al. in the Journal of Emergency Medicine 2011. Now, this is a chart review from a single large academic hospital. Over a 15-year time frame, they identified 161 patients with digoxin toxicity. 23 of those patients had been given IV calcium to treat hyperkalemia. There was no association with mortality. It was 20% in both groups. There was also no significant dysrhythmias in the hour after calcium was given. The major weakness? Well, this is a chart review. But in toxicology, that is almost the highest level of evidence that you can actually find. The good thing is that the outcomes, mortality and dysrhythmias, are both objective. Although chart reviews could have a number of potential biases... I would be more concerned if the results had shown an association. The fact that there is no association makes these results believable. So our evidence-based medicine bottom line? Well, there are actually two takeaways here. First, digoxin toxicity is pretty rare. There were only 160 cases over 15 years at a major academic center. So we shouldn't let it get in the way of our treating the much more common and equally deadly hyperkalemia. Second, although it's not great evidence, the best evidence that we have says that it's safe to treat hyperkalemia with calcium even if the patient is digitoxic. The stone heart is a myth. This is Justin Morgenstern with your evidence-based medicine bottom line signing out. All right, let's do a little review here. So for the non-arresting patient on dialysis with hyperk, the first thing to do after getting an ECG and ordering up your calcium, insulin, glucose, and salbutamol is to call your dialysis unit. It's a simple call. I've got a 67-year-old woman with renal failure on dialysis with a true potassium of 7.3 who's getting calcium, insulin, glucose, and salbutamol. She needs dialysis ASAP. Great. Now, any patient with a wide QRS presumed to be caused by hyper-K needs calcium for sure. And a reasonable number, if you like to use numbers, above which to trigger giving calcium 
is a potassium of 6.5. In terms of which form of calcium to give, unless the patient is in the midst of cardiac arrest or about to arrest, we suggest calcium gluconate so that you don't fry the patient's hand off inadvertently with your extravasated calcium chloride. So calcium gluconate is one gram of 10% calcium gluconate, that's one amp, mixed with 100 cc's of D5W or normal saline in a mini bag and given over 5 to 10 minutes and repeat PRN. Don't forget to go back and repeat the ECG and make sure that QRS is narrowing. And if you suspect DIG toxicity, it's okay to give calcium gluconate. Just be a bit more careful and give it slowly via infusion. One amp, again, in 100 cc's of D5W or normal saline, over 20 to 30 minutes instead of 5 to 10 minutes. And watch the patient's monitor like a hawk. I'm on a lookout. I'm on a lookout. Now, one of the things I'd like to come back to are the P waves in the ECG, because I don't think we stressed enough the importance of the P waves. Dr. Bamel, what do we need to know about the P waves in Hyper-K? So everyone always talks about the widening of the QRS as sort of the trigger point for giving calcium. But it's important to remember that loss of P waves, P wave flattening, and PR prolongation are going to happen first. And that is a clear indication for calcium. And you'll make your patient a lot better and a lot less bradycardic if you give an amp of calcium gluconate. I think one of the most memorable cases that I had as a resident was when I was called down as a CCU resident to the emergency room for a patient that was profoundly bradycardic, where they were in sort of this junctional rhythm with pauses, uh, and it didn't really follow any particular block type pattern, and we were consulted for basically an insertion of a transvenous pacer. And as soon as we recognized that the potassium was high, and we gave calcium and shifted, the patient profoundly changed Pressure came up, P waves reappeared. So it's just really important to, in your differential diagnosis, when you see profound bradycardias, to consider giving calcium early before more invasive procedures like transcutaneous or transvenous pacing, et cetera. What a great pearl. Respect the P wave. <laughs> Love it. All right, on to case number three the hyperkalemic cardiac arrest. <laughs> An 80-year-old woman with a history of end-stage renal disease, hypertension, and an MI is rushed into a resuscitation room with a decreased LOC and a blood pressure of 70 on PELP. EMS reports that she had four days of nausea, diarrhea, and fatigue with a syncopal episode that day that triggered the 911 call by her husband. The EMS ECG shows a wide complex, bizarre-looking bradycardia with some ST elevation in the anterior leads. As she rolls into your recess bay, she loses her pulse. CPR started immediately, and you go through the usual resuscitation stuff, and a stat blood gas comes back with a potassium of 9.1 and severe metabolic acidosis. So Dr. Bamel. How would you manage this patient now that you know she's got a K of 9.1? Yeah, so ABCs and empty the kitchen sink, basically. So push an amp of calcium chloride, bolus, normal saline. Given that she's acidotic and she's arrested, why not give bicarb? I don't see that there's much harm at this point. Um, and it 
potentially could do some benefit. I would give epinephrine, probably not cardiac epi, like one milligram dose, but a smaller dose, maybe 100 mics of epi, because it's probably sort of a pseudo-PEA arrest that we're running, and we can confirm that with an art line. The epi will also, in addition to trying to elevate the blood pressure, it will uh, potentially shift some potassium intracellularly and bind to those beta-2 agonists on skeletal muscle cells. And that's pretty much it. Hopefully, uh, she'll respond to those therapies. And we can then shift her once spontaneous circulation returns and call nephrology for uh, dialysis. All right. So the key points there are calcium chloride and keep on giving it until the QRS is less than 100. And that's really interesting. Epinephrine actually, at least theoretically, will lower the potassium. And so epinephrine, I guess, would be your presser of choice uh, in the patient with a hyperkalemic arrest. Now, I understand that there's a study, I don't know how they actually accomplished this, but I understand that there's a study where they did dialysis intra-arrest for hyper-K. I know that at my shop, that would be impossible. I guess if you're in some very resource-rich center, that sounds like a pretty good idea. I guess suffice to say for most of us who can't get dialysis right away, that we should be pushing to try and get the patient to dialysis as soon as possible. So let's say you've got this patient back. You've given them your kitchen sink. The ECG has now pretty much normalized. They've got a blood pressure. How do you monitor the patient? What do you do next? I mean, usually we high-five each other and call the ICU and go and see the next patient. But what can you tell our listeners about the post-arrest care of a hyper-K patient? So just remember that you've saved the patient's life predominantly by giving them intravenous calcium. And that effect can last as little as 20 or 30 minutes, depending on the dose that you gave the patient. So you need to immediately step up and implement the rest of the management strategy of hyperkalemia. You need to shift that patient and you need to call the nephrologist to come down urgently to initiate dialysis. You're going to be back to square one within the next 20 or 30 minutes. Yeah, unless you're able to correct the underlying cause quickly, which would be unexpected in this particular patient, then you're looking at dialysis and potentially repeating the calcium bolus in 30 minutes. So I would just keep it right beside the bed and definitely put a note on my chart to come back and reassess this patient often. All right. So that's the arrest patient. So we've covered the sort of -of run-of-the-mill hyper-K patient We've talked about the dialysis patient, and we've talked about the cardiac arrest hyper-K patient. Dr. Bamel, what does the future hold for the treatment of hyperkalemia? Like you said at the top of the podcast, we've been treating hyper-K pretty much the same way for 30, 40, 50 years. We've been able to finesse it a bit based on, on the conversation we've had in this podcast. Is there any hope for the future that something new will come along? Uh, There are some binders out there that are looking useful and that they'll lower the potassium a bit and they're not that harmful. I don't think that it's really going to play a role in in the emergency world. I can probably comment on this more, but it looks like it's mostly in chronic kidney disease patients, as outpatients when they're mildly hyperkalemic. It can normalize the potassium, but that's, that's all I've sort of come across. Yeah, there's actually very large studies of these new and expensive binders They definitely lower the serum potassium over hours to days in patients with chronic renal disease. 
Some of them, you'll see the initial effect within four hours. But I really think they're going to have a very limited role to play in the emergency room management. You might start writing the odd prescription for these drugs to send a patient home on if they have appropriate follow-up once you've dealt with the emergency issues. It's not going to turn a, a sick patient around in the emergency department. So many thanks to Dr. Etchells and to Dr. Bamel for their words of wisdom. I want to wrap up now with the treatment summary. First, you want to stabilize the cardiac membrane with calcium in patients with a K of greater than 6.5 or absence of P waves or an absence of P waves or, or as traditionally taught, a wide QRS. Plus, don't forget, an absence of P waves would be a good indication for calcium. Now, in the rest or pre-arrest patient, give one amp of calcium chloride via a good flowing big peripheral IV or central line and repeat it until the QRS is less than 100 milliseconds or until the P waves appear again. And repeat that again if the QRS widens again or the P waves disappear again once the calcium wears off, and you should expect it to wear off. Now, in the non-arrest or peri-arrest patient, give calcium gluconate one gram of 10% calcium gluconate. That's 10 milliliters mixed with 10 cc's of D5W or normal saline in a mini bag and give it over five to 10 minutes. And again, repeat as needed. And don't forget that if you've got a patient who you suspect might have digitoxicity, toxicity, give it slowly, like over 20 minutes. Next, you need to drive K into the cells. So give two amps of D50W followed by regular insulin 10 units for any patient with a K of about greater than 6 or any ECG changes of hyper-K, including peak T waves. Then if you want, you can start D5W or D10W at about 50 cc's an hour. After you give the glucose and insulin, that's the time to give beta agonists as well. And that would be 20 milligrams by neb or eight puffs via spacer after you've given the calcium glucose and insulin. Because remember that the K might actually go up slightly a few minutes after giving the beta agonists, but ultimately it will decrease it. Then you can consider eliminating K through the kidneys and the GI tract. If you're in the arrest or peri-arrest situation, dialysis is really the way to go. Uh, for patients who are in severe renal failure and hyper-K. And then in the patient who's not so sick with hyper-K, it's really getting that urine output. So giving fluids like normal saline to your hypovolemic patients. And just remember that after a couple of liters, if you need to still give more fluid to switch to Ringler's lactate to avoid the hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis. Now, if the patient's going to be around in your ED for a long time, uh, you can consider giving laxatives. And if you do, you give PEG 3350, 17 grams PO. Remember, no fleet enemas in patients with renal failure. And if the patient's hypervolemic, then it's reasonable to give furosemide as well. For monitoring, check the glucose every 30 minutes and recheck the ECG and the K at about one hour. You need to repeat as needed until the K is below 6 or dialysis has been started. Well, that wraps it up for this month's episode. Thank you so much for listening. We'd love to hear your feedback. Please email me at anton at emergencymedicinecases.com and hope to see you soon. Take it easy.